Before I begin, I'd like to invite you to join with me in a moment of prayer and reflection. Let us join our hearts, minds, and bodies in prayer. Reigning God, whose dominion is over all worlds, and whose witnesses come from many places and points of view, expand our knowledge of your truth and our appreciation of diversity so we might, may find common ground with others rather than being a stumbling block in their way. Show us how to be at peace with one another and faithful to you. Amen. The comment about finding God at Costco made me think of two things. One, that puts a new meaning on cheap grace. <laughs> and secondly, is God cheaper at Costco? Because that's really a bulk, bulk item. Finding God in the world. The book of Esther is unfamiliar to many of us. This Sunday, it's the alternate reading and the Revised Common Lectionary, which means it's rarely read in worship and even less often a starting point for constructing a sermon. Therefore, I'm going to take a bit of time to share some of the historical context and the setting of the book before I continue on. The setting for the book of Esther is the most secular and least holy of locales, Susa in the far eastern sector of the Persian Empire. It's here that we encounter Esther and the Israelites who are living in exile, one of the many times in their history that they have been in exile. They're fully immersed in the surrounding culture, its values and assumptions. The book of Esther contains no mention of God, no mention of worship, no mention of the Torah, no food laws, or mention of distinctive dress, and therefore it is indicative of how God's people had adapted to this new world that they had been sold into, as Esther says to her king. Esther, Hadassah, her Jewish birth name, was an orphan living in Persia. If you go back to the beginning chapters of Esther, you'll, we first meet her as a concubine to the king of Persia. And because of her beauty and her wit and her intellect, she finds a special place in the king's heart and becomes his queen. Her true religious identity as a Jew is hidden from the king and all the people of Persia, in fact. And living as a religious minority requires careful and sophisticated judgments about how and when to claim one's religious identity. As I prepared my homily, I turned to the World Wide Web for commentary on the book of Esther. And one of the pages I came across was Political Theology Today. As I noted in the earlier service, I'm sure all of you have been reading political theology today on a daily basis. It's a forum for interdisciplinary and interreligious dialogue among clergy and scholars, students and activists. 
And the article on Esther appeared September 24, 2012. You might ask, why did I go back three years to find an article? Well, that's the last time Esther appeared as the reading in the lectionary, because the lectionary is on this three-year cycle. And so the last time those of us that follow the common lectionary would have possibly heard or read or preached upon the book of Esther would have been in late September of 2012. And the author Amy Merrill Willis described the political religious climate of the day with a particular focus on the references to God or the lack thereof in the platform of the Democratic National Convention. She noted that in the weeks following the DNC's National Convention, which I believe that year was sometime in late August, the media and others who were pushing the media had become outraged because the Democratic Party's platform did not mention God. You know, these platforms are multi-page documents, and in nowhere in any of the pages in any part of the document was God mentioned. And this was particularly upsetting to those folks who were pushing the media to hound the Democratic leadership because they noted that in 2008 and in 2004, God had been mentioned in the platform. So this, for them, was clearly more evidence that the Democratic Party had become some godless, amorphous political entity. Amy Merrill Willis went on to note that in the end the DNC capitulated to the pressure by adding this line, people achieving their God-given potential. People achieving their God-given potential. A Democratic senator and Yale Divinity School graduate, Chris Coons, reflecting on the controversy and the reinstatement of God language, noted this, there is more to honoring God than reciting his name. Think about that. There's more to honoring God than reciting his name. The book of Esther and Esther herself underscore the truth expressed in Senator Kuhn's commentary. Esther goes well beyond not mentioning God by assimilating herself into the culture and religion of her captors. Esther's ability to hide her identity allowed her to become the queen. Think about that. An orphan rising up through the ranks of a concubine in a king's harem to become the queen of one of the most powerful nations at that time on the planet. And she did so because she was able to hide her religious identity and not connect herself to the Israelites who were being held captive. That placed her in a unique position when her people faced, were faced with genocide at the hands of the number two person in the kingdom. She was there at that moment and able to reveal herself. Esther's story of hidden religious identity is one that speaks to a variety of people in our own time. The reasons people hide their identity in public and sometimes in private might be similar to Esther's reasons for hiding her religious identity. 
As Pastor Kelly mentioned, I am the campus minister at CA House and the multi-faith living community. And we have students who come to CA House and the multi-faith living community who hide their religious identity. Now I know to some of you this might seem a bit strange that students would come to a campus ministry and feel it necessary to hide their religious identity. Well, they may do so for some of these reasons. We have students who are religious minorities, and some choose to hide their identity because of past discrimination and or persecution. We have students who come from countries where they are persecuted for publicly identifying as a member of a religious minority. And therefore, hiding one's religious identity is truly a matter of life and death. There are those who come as seekers. Their religious identity is not so much hidden as it is yet to be discovered. There are students who come whose religious identity is so thoroughly integrated with the dominant culture that it becomes difficult for them and us to separate their religious identity from their culture, their social and economic identity. Some of you gathered here this morning may represent one of these groups or know someone or feel an affinity or connection to someone who feels it necessary to hide their identity or whose identity is so connected to their culture and their social and economic status that they really have lost sight of what their identity is. And then there are students who come with a more overt and clearly articulated religious identity. And the gathering point for all of these students and the staff as well is the Wednesday night multi-faith dinner and program. Esther chose to make her religious identity known at a banquet for the king. If you heard the first part of the text, there was the first night of drinking of wine, and then the second night of drinking of wine, and it's at that point when Esther senses that the crowd and the king may have a softer heart, and it may be safe for her to share her deepest and most and her innermost feelings. And the students that come to CA House and the MLC may not declare their religious identity at one of our dinners, but around that table, they will share, they will explore, and they will discover the deep questions of faith and identity. It's through such encounters that the journey of faith begins to take shape for those whose religious identity is unformed or in the earliest stages of formation. For students whose religious identity is hidden, for one reason or another, the dinner table is a safe space. They can begin to unpack that identity, much as Esther did at the banquet for the king. Now, a primary reason why the dinner table is a safe space has to do with the fact that the students are in neutral space or neutral ground. The dinner table for them is a neutral space. It may not be for all of us. We're getting to that time in the year when we're going to travel maybe home or 
be with family at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we may return or revert to the roles that our family saw us in long ago. And so the table may not always and for all be a neutral or safe space. But for our students, the reason it's a neutral space, a safe space, is there is no need or pressure to mention God. There's no need or pressure to talk about sacred texts or religious practices or rituals, to dress in a particular fashion or make truth claims. Now I'm not suggesting that God or sacred texts or religious practices or rituals or religious garb or truth claims are absent. In fact, if you join us on a Wednesday night, you'll see and hear and experience all of these things and the multiplicity of religious backgrounds and traditions gathered together. But the important thing for our students is that they do not need to be overtly shared or expressed for God's activity and presence to be in the midst of the gathered body. Think about that. God's presence is there even in the absence of the overt mention of God or the sharing of sacred texts or religious practices and rituals. Few would argue that Yahweh was the actor in saving the Israelites, even though Yahweh's name is never uttered, and no prayer to Yahweh is ever offered in the book of Esther. In fact, religious scholars throughout the history argued whether Esther should be part of the sacred text. And if you read the Apocrypha, those additional writings, there's an apocryphal version of the book of Esther where they included a prayer to God because people were uncomfortable that Esther didn't mention or pray to God or refer to these religious practices. But in the end, people of faith made the decision that the book of Esther was sacred and necessary for us to understand the complexity and mystery of God. The research suggests that people today are experiencing the divine in nature, in the classroom, the office, and families of all types and shapes and sizes, in cultural and social and economic diversity, Without the need to name or quantify the divine they are encountering. Capitalizing on this new reality, CA House and the MLC are creating new models for students to discover and follow their spiritual paths in a world that is becoming increasingly connected and where the capacity to engage with persons from a multiplicity of religious and non religious backgrounds will equip our students with the tools necessary to create new paradigms for religious dialogue. They will be empowered to find God in the secular and the holy, and apparently at Costco as well. Amen.